Service, Change and Reform in the Vatican. So much of the change that he's seeking to bring about isn't him giving orders and people obeying it. I mean, he he famously said uh, a couple of years back that reforming the Roman Curia was like cleaning the Sphinx with a toothbrush. It's a patient process because it is about transformation of attitudes. From Religion News Service, this is Beliefs. I'm Bill Baker. Our guest this week is Austin Ivory, here to discuss his second book about Pope Francis called Wounded Shepherd, Pope Francis and his struggle to convert the Catholic Church. Wrestling from both broad respect and popularity, but also deep institutional suspicion, Pope Francis enjoys adoration and resistance in equal measure. Ivory's book distills the challenges of Francis' pontificate. UK-based journalist, author, and commentator Austin Ivory is with us, and we're here to talk about his new book, The Wounded Shepherd. Austin, thank you for being with us. No, good to be with you, Bill. Six years ago, when, when Francis became pope, you wrote an incredible book called The Great Reformer, anticipating what he was going to do. Six years later now, we have this new book of yours coming out called The Wounded Shepherd. What happened? This book is about the great reform. It is about the reform that he's been undertaking and leading these last six years. But the title reflects the change in my understanding of his leadership role. I still like the title, The Great Reformer, and I think he is uh, one because he understands change and he's a change agent. I suppose the problem with The Great Reformer is that it can imply that he is the source of the change. In reality, I've come to see that his role is much more like a spiritual director on a retreat, so that it's really God and the Holy Spirit that brings about the change, and what he's doing is helping to produce that. So he provides the space, he warns you against the temptations and the obstacles. So he's leading a process which really, if you like, God is in charge of. And I think that's my understanding of his leadership of the church is reflected in that title. But the title is Wounded Shepherd, and then the subtitle is Pope Francis and his struggle to convert the Catholic Church. So conversion, my, again, my understanding now, I think it's it, the reform I understand much more about an invitation to a much deeper conversion of mind and heart. I mean, ultimately, it's a culture conversion, a, a conversion of mindset, a conversion also in viewpoint. And that's what I'm trying to capture there with that title. Most people think that this is a hierarchical organization and suddenly the new pope is the boss and he says this is the way it's going to be and that's the way it is. It doesn't seem to be working that way. Yes, I, I can immediately hear chuckling in the background from uh, uh, from mil- millions of Catholics. I mean, the thing is, the church is far too large and, and complex and multifarious an organization to be vertically constructed like that. It just simply doesn't work that way. On the other hand, the Pope has an extraordinary presence um, and authority within the church because of he is the successor of St. Peter. St. Peter is the one appointed by Jesus to lead the apostles. So, uh, so there's a kind of a paradox in the leadership of a Pope. The common understanding of leadership is really one we take from politics. In other words, you have a leader appears, promises to do a number of things, you tell the story of his attempt to do those things and then you kind of 
add up on a scoreboard, has he achieved those things or not? I think with popes, you've got to look much more long-term. They're much more about initiating processes which often bear fruit in subsequent generations. And I know that's how Francis himself sees his own role as sowing those seeds. And, you know, so much of the change that he's seeking to bring about isn't him giving orders and people obeying it. I mean, he he famously said a couple of years back that reforming the Roman Curia was like cleaning the sphinx with a toothbrush. It's a patient process because it is about transformation of attitudes. And so there is, there's a, a, a slowness, a gradualness built into the process. That said, his, his reformers are radical. And the invitation to the change that he's making to the church and has made these past six years has struck at the very core, I would say, of what it means to be Catholic. And in a way, the resistance to Francis is a sign of the effectiveness of the conversion to which he's calling us. The second chapter is called If the Dogs Are Barking, and that comes from a phrase attributed to Don Quixote, which the Pope apparently often quotes Mm. in Spanish, if the dogs are barking, Sancho, it's a sign that we're moving ahead. In other words, you know, you're on your horse and you're setting off and the dogs will start barking. So the resistance in a way is a sign that change is happening. During this resistance about some of the reforms, and I want to talk about those reforms the the Pope is making, how do you think, because you know Francis, how do you think he's feeling about this? Is he uh, surprised he's getting so much pushback or uh, was is he ready for it? And he's uh, uh, still juiced up to move forward, if I might say that. Well, he's certainly juiced up to move forward. And, uh, you know, he's spoken himself about the resistance recently, actually, on the plane back from Mauritius, where he talked about schism. And he said, you know, the possibility of schism is always there. That's human freedom. He's spoken a lot about, about the resistance. And he's always very clear that there's a very big difference between criticism, which is important and good and right. We need criticism. You know, people of goodwill who criticize him or criticize the church, that's fine. The problem is where you get this thing, which I suppose we can call resistance, which is an attack on his authority, an undermining of his authority and a view from some people who claim to be guardians of the tradition, who, if you like, try and set up a kind of parallel authority. That's the schismatic mentality, uh, which you can see very strongly at the moment in the church. What's his response to it? I think he sees it, again, as signs that there is a conversion happening and there's necessarily going to be resistance from people who are still clinging to things. It's about attachments. And so I think he expects it, he understands it, and uh, in a way, he's reassured by it. Okay, let's talk now about what some of those reforms are and not only what some have been, what they are now, and where he is going with the reformers, what might be coming. Well, the book uh, sets out, really, in a number of different chapters at the beginning, the curial reform, the reformers. So I have a, I have a chapter, for example, on the, on the financial reform, which was a very important part of the Vatican reform, particularly at the beginning of the pontificate, so 2014-2015. And then I have a chapter on the reform of the Curia, which is, again, reform of the attitudes, trying to turn the Vatican from being a court which sees itself as in some way having power over local bishops' conferences to rather being at the service of those local bishops' conferences. And that's a very real and radical transformation that's happened uh, in, the, in the Vatican. And then the reforms on sexual abuse, I have a whole, a whole chapter on that, and another chapter called Close and Concrete, which is about the attempt 
to bring about a more missionary and evangelizing church corresponding to his own reading, really the Latin American church's discernment of the signs of the times. So, And then the later chapters uh, on ecology and on the family synods, and I have a final chapter called Mercy and Its Discontents, which is in a way the heart of the pontificate, the heart of the reform that he's seeking to bring about, which is uh, to enable the church to become much more like the God it proclaims, the Jesus that it proclaims. And above all, I'm going to use a, a Greek word here, the synctakabasis, God's coming down in order to come close. So Bergoglio Francis is very convinced, he constantly refers to the way that God saves us is a coming down and coming close. That's mercy. God, as it were, doesn't stand outside the human condition but gets inside. That's the, the meaning of the incarnation and takes on our culture and all the rest of it. So the church is called to be like that mm. uh, because he's convinced that you know when the church enacts, I mean, I struggle for the words here, enacts, performs, embodies the mercy of God, then it is evangelizing. To the extent that we are saved by God, it is through that kind of an action. So that the church ceases to be, if you like, an institution which stands outside humanity with its arms crossed, wagging its finger, but rather one that walks with you into your dark night, helps you, opens up channels of grace, you know, to, to enable you to be what you're called to be. Uh, the idea of the good shepherd, uh, you know, the church's good shepherd, or to use his famous phrase, as a kind of battlefield hospital. So that's the heart, I think, of the Francis reform, is to enable the church to come closer to humanity in a way that better performs the saving action of God. Let's talk about some of the specifics of some of those reforms. You talked about the financial reforms uh, of the curia and the and the reforms of the curia itself. What uh, how what financial reforms took place? How how big is the Vatican? You know, I mean, just in in financial terms. Well, I mean, it is it is a substantial organization, but on the other hand, it's really not that big. So, uh, the Diocese of Cologne in Germany has a budget bigger than the whole of the Vatican. You look at some of the um, the figures for the, for example, the Vatican Bank, and it, I mean, no no American bank would be that small. You know, we're, we're, so we're talking about uh, in world terms a relatively small institution but nonetheless a substantial body. The main problem with the finances in the Vatican at the time that Pope Francis was elected in 2013 was there was a lack of regulation, a lack of transparency, such that the Vatican was being used and had been used for many years by particularly Italian financial interests to launder money uh, and so with obviously the collusion of Vatican officials and so there was a kind of a bit of a wild west you know in terms of finances so what was needed above all was regulation what was needed was transparency and what was needed and this has taken much longer and I document in the chapter uh, also to implement mechanisms not just of discovering you know wrongdoing but also punishing the wrongdoers and for that the Vatican has had to develop actually quite a because you know financial crime is sophisticated crime so they've had to develop quite sophisticated mechanisms and I describe in the chapter how they've done that but it's also the story of course of, of again of resistance you know the, the so-called you know people protecting their patches so there's been a struggle going on but my overall conclusion is that if you look at the Vatican now in 2019 compared to what it was back in 2013 and it really is a it's a transformed institution we cannot now go back to the days of some of the scandals that we had before Pope Francis's election just couldn't happen now 
What about the Curia? How big is that? That's a group of cardinals that are, I guess, running the Vatican. Do we need all that many? And uh, are they really working, or are they more of a problem than they are a help? You know, Pope John XXIII's famous remark when asked how many people work in the Vatican, he said about half. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, it, it's it's a body of a few a few thousand uh, people who are mostly uh, not cardinals, not priests, not bishops, but rather Italian laymen and women and quite a few religious and it is it has been in many ways a bloated bureaucracy so one of the things that's happened in Francis is the slimming down of the bureaucracy uh, particularly Vatican Radio which was a one of the big employers in, in, in the Vatican has been slimmed right down so there's been various transformations that have taken place within the Curia to make it cheaper yes to make it more effective more 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 streamlined but also, I think above all, and, and this is the point really of the chapter, to turn it into a, a mechanism of service rather than domination. So if you like the image of the washing of the feet, I mean, it, it's it's a curia called to serve. I give one example in the chapter, which I think is very telling of the effect of this transformation, which is this, that before local bishops from a particular country used to go to Rome on what they call the ad limina visit, which usually happens about every five, six, seven years. The bishops go to Rome and they go around the different departments of the Vatican. And they always used to complain that they were treated like altar boys. In other words, they went, they were given instructions, they were often told off. They were felt that they had to account for themselves. Now they go and the heads of dicastery say to them, how can we help? <laughs> Pope Francis has asked us to listen to you. You know, how can we? And then they go and have these extraordinary, you know, two-hour spontaneous meetings with Pope Francis. And they just can't believe it they're just amazed Uh, so that's one sign i think the other great sign is uh, synodality the synods of bishops now are much more meaningful mechanisms of, of deliberation on the part of the church they don't decide laws they advise uh, and they suggest but they've become means by which the church can really move forward in terms of uh, of of the pastoral application of church doctrine Um, we've seen that a number of times we've just had it now with the amazon there's been a synod on the amazonia and real um, progress can be made as a result of those synods and again bishops are delighted by that you covered the sex abuse issue in a unique way. It's something that really nobody was aware of, but you had sources that uh, you were able to uncover that talked about how the American sex abuse issue was kind of covered up, was uh, from the Vatican itself. Uh, can you f- fill us in on some of those details? Yes, I, I don't think I've, I've uh, anywhere suggested that, that uh, talked about Vatican cover-up exactly. I suppose the, the contribution of my chapter is to show how Francis's own response to the sex abuse issue changed, particularly as a result of, of Chile, and that he come to, came to see the issue as much more a matter of corruption. So rather than applying policies, what was needed was a much more deep-seated uh, conversion. And that leads then to him taking certain actions and viewing it in, in, a, in a different way. It led to him calling, for example, a worldwide meeting of bishops last February in the Vatican uh, to confront the issue. No, I suppose the revelation in, in the book uh, is about the way the leadership of the U.S. Bishops' Conference sought in response to uh, a lot of media criticism of the bishops' handling of the abuse issue in the United States. They sought to create a mechanism which effectively bypassed the Vatican. Uh, and I show here uh, in the book how uh, this was kind of discovered uh, by Rome and they acted to prevent that. 
and I think it shows an extent to which the American church in many ways, parts of the American church, really are very distant from Rome, very suspicious of Francis. They talk about the American church as in some way the lost church in this pontificate. There's an alienation from the papacy, which is quite striking. Certainly when I researched the book, I was very struck by it, which isn't, by the way, to say that the bishops in the United States aren't with the Pope. I think you know many of them are, certainly a number of them are very strongly. But there is definitely a sizable number of them, you know, 25, 30 bishops who really ha- have their backs turned against Rome, you know, and have a kind of semi-schismatic mentality. And some of that comes across in, in, in this chapter. When we talk about Pope Francis, we often think of him in not only a Catholic global sense, but in a global sense of being a kind of moral world leader. There really aren't many of those left. Maybe he's the only one left. It's partly, I assume, his understanding of how to communicate in the media. Can you talk about his his relationship with media, the way he thinks about media, and how he uh, works with them? Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think there's nobody at the moment on the world stage that has the the moral stature standing of Francis. I think there are gestures of his, you know, like the time that he kissed uh, a man with neurofibromatosis in St. Peter's Square, uh, moments, you know, actions of his which strike a deep chord in, in, in humanity, you know, and well outside the church. People say, look, this is, this is a man of God. They are awakened, they are reminded, you know, of who God is by Francis's actions. And he's deeply admired, you know, by, by Jews, by Muslims, by atheists, by humanists. I mean, some of the strongest uh, newspaper editorials uh, in admiration of Francis have been written in, you know, what one might call classically secular or liberal uh, newspapers. So there is definitely what they call a Francis effect, which is to make the world stand up and look again at the Catholic Church. Uh, and, of course, it's been accompanied by a very strong bitter reaction from some Catholic elites, uh, particularly in the United States, conservative elites, against Francis for, I think, precisely the same reason. In other words, the, the reason that Francis is loved by the world is why he definitely isn't loved by some Catholics. And that's in a way, very like the gospel. You know, it, it is Jesus's own who reject him. You know, the Pharisees uh, look at Jesus and they know that he's a person of power. They know that he's a good Jew. He understands the truth and the doctrine. But there's something about him which threatens them. Uh, and they see him through this distorted lens. Uh, I talk in the book about, I use the word invidia, which is where we get the word envy, but literally means a not seeing. You know, there was a kind of blindness when it came to looking at Jesus. And you can see that with some of the critics of the Pope. You know, they see him, for example, as diluting, you know, Catholic doctrine. They see him as as somehow bending to modernity, you know. It's just not true. I mean, Francis's fundamental desire and concern is to evangelize humanity. And you know he wants to change the church, not to make the church more like the modern world, but to help it evangelize the modern world, because he knows that the church has to change in response to these new times. But change does not mean renouncing what is central to the church. It doesn't mean renouncing the core doctrines. Far from it, his concern is to help people live those doctrines in this new time, in this new, much more fragmented, liquid, secular age. Uh, and that's the, here where we're getting to the heart of some of the kind of the the misunderstandings and the hostility around the Pope. I think come from this from this not seeing, and I think it's one of the most fascinating aspects of the story of this pontificate. That part of the story of this pontificate has been the resistance to it. Has the Pope now made enough change that whatever that change is is going to be permanent? That will definitely outlive the Pope. I understand that. Uh, now the majority of cardinals uh, have been 
uh, selected by the Pope, so I assume they think the way he does, more or less. Is the change now permanent, and where do we go from here? I think it's a mistake to think of the Pope appointing uh, cardinals who think like him. I, th- I, I don't actually think, you know, when you meet cardinals, and I know many of them, you know, you meet one, you've met one, you know, they're very different. They have different uh, priorities and they, yeah, they have strong disagreements between them. He, he's not looking for clones of him uh, and he enjoys uh, disagreement and tension and, and he thinks all this is important. What he has done, though, with the College of Cardinals, and that's the body in the church of cardinals who, of course, elect his successor. There are usually around 120 of them at a time of a conclave who are under 80. And he has, as you say, appointed more than half of them. But what's very striking about his choices as cardinal is that many of them come from what I might call the margins of, the, of not just of the world, but of the church. So he's broken with the logic that cardinals should always be from strong metropolitan centers. He's appointed, for example, you know, cardinals uh, who are bishops of you know, remote Pacific islands where there are, you know, 100,000 Catholics. I mean, it's unheard of in the church to do that. Now, why has he done that? He's taken people like that, people who are on the front line often of war and, and, and interreligious dialogue, and he's appointed them because he believes that the, that the dynamic of the College of Cardinals needs to be much more open, much more pastoral. Now, that means I think it's much harder to predict who the next pope will be But I think we can be sure that the next pope will be like Francis in the sense that he'll be a pastor uh, who is concerned with the wounds of the world, you know, who will look upon the wounds of the world firstly. And I think that's important. In other words, we won't get the kind of, I think, left-right polarizations that we've had in some conclaves uh, in the past. Overall, are his reforms permanent? Well... Yeah, nothing's permanent. Everything's in permanent uh, motion. But I do think that the Francis pontificate is the first of a series of pontificates of a new era of a global church. Remember, we've been a European-dominated church, and the popes have all come from Europe since, you know, for the last uh, over a thousand years. And now suddenly we have a pope from the developing world. And I think the next pope, if he isn't from the developing world, will probably at least have that much more global vision. And I think the overall direction that Francis has put the church in, which is missionary and evangelizing in in a context of of liquid modernity, I think that direction is now established, at least for the foreseeable future. There is no turning back. And I think partly, you know, these bishops who have tasted what it's like to have a curia that, 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 that serves them rather than tries to dominate them, the fact they've got synods where their deliberations actually count, you know, they, they don't want to go back on that. How is the American Catholic Church looked at in terms of the worldwide Catholic Church? There were about, what, 40 million American Catholics, something like that, 1.2 billion Catholics in the world. It's a huge worldwide institution with America only being a small part of it. Does the American Catholic Church have clout? Are they viewed as outliers? Where does the American Catholic fit in? I think there's a bit of both. So you're right. In, of course, population terms, uh, America is a small part of the church. On the other hand, it is the, the world's third biggest Catholic Catholic country, right? So after Mexico and Brazil, uh, and then and then uh, U.S. and the Philippines are around the same. So it's a it's a major player, and of course it's a major player in the in the world in the universal church also because of its wealth. I mean, let's face it, you know, it has powerful institutions that are influential, uh, and you know, it funds a lot of projects in the church. So of course, uh, the American church is very important. I think it's regarded um, from Rome sometimes as being a very a church which is very bureaucratic and managerial church which isn't 
evangelizing, I think, as, as, as the Pope would like it to. That's to say it tends to rely too much on what we might call the traditional mechanisms of faith transmission through its institutions. But if you look at the statistics, you know, people are not converting to Catholicism and the Catholics are leaving the institution. I mean, uh, there has been a Francis effect. I think a lot of people feel much more welcome in church than they used to, but that hasn't stopped the overall uh, picture of, of decline. And therefore, I think there's a need in America for a change of course, and that's what I think Pope's been seeking to bring about. In the worldwide church, and actually in all churches, according to the statistics we get from the Pew Center on Research, and uh, at least in the U.S., is that all religions are going down, and there are fewer and fewer people of traditional faith. They may have spirituality or something else, but not traditional faith. Any comments on that? Yeah, I mean, I, you see, I think we're living through a phenomenon of what one sociologist has called believing without belonging. So, And that's the product of technological change. It's the product of the fragmentation of human communities. I mean, people don't stay together in the way that they used to geographically or, or socially. And uh, therefore, it's much harder. You think that traditionally religion is transmitted from one generation to the next, really fundamentally through family and through institutions. So to the extent that those are weakened, faith transmission becomes much harder. The, f the transmission belts, if you like, are fraying or broken even. And in that context, and this is where Francis, I think, has a very clear vision, the Latin American church back in 2007 met in Brazil in a Aparecida and they they did this kind of diagnosis of modernity and they said exactly this and Cardinal Bergoglio, now Pope Francis, was a big part of this discernment and, and wrote the document that came out of it. And their message was, in this context of, of liquidity and fragmentation, we can no longer rely on the traditional mechanisms of the Catholic Church to transmit the faith. What we have to do is to enable what they call the founding or primary encounter, which is to say the experience of the encounter with Jesus Christ which is always an experience of mercy. It's always an experience, in other words, of love. It's not ultimately at the heart of Christianity. We don't have an idea. We have a person. right? And so it's all about the church enabling that encounter. So that's why the church has to become missionary. It has to become evangelizing. It must go out of itself to the periphery, to suffering humanity, to the wounds of, uh, to the, wounds of the world, not just the materially poor, but the existentially poor, the lonely. If you like, enable that encounter with Christ, because that's where the church will always start from that. And it has to, it's just like the early church. In a way, this is a period much more like the early church where we don't, have, we don't have, we won't have in the future strong institutions. And that's why so much of Francis's actions and words are geared towards communicating the, the, the closeness and the mercy of God. That's why in a way for, for, in the Francis pontificate, charitable, compassionate action and evangelization are not two separate things. They're kind of one. Because the, the, what he wants you to know firstly is that God loves you, that you are embraced and loved unconditionally. Once you learn that, you've experienced it, that will change your horizon. That will change. You, you, become, you become a transformed person in so many ways. So as one Chilean Jesuit once put it to me, we moralize by evangelizing, not evangelizing by moralizing. The first thing people need to hear is not you cannot do this, you cannot do that, or, or even we believe X, Y, Z. The first thing they need to see and experience for themselves is the love of God. So that's the heart in the way of the, of the Francis reform. Austin Ivory, thank you for being with us. It's been great to be with you, Bill. Thank you. Our guest this week was Austin Ivory, author of recently released book, Wounded Shepherd, 
Pope Francis and his struggle to convert the Catholic Church. The conversation continues on our Facebook page, and we tweet at Beliefs Podcast. If you like our program, come review us on iTunes. Beliefs is brought to you with the support of the Bernard L. Schwartz Center for Media, Public Policy, and Education at the Graduate School of Education at Fordham University. Jay Woodward is our producer, production assistance from Jonathan Smith. The theme music is by Edward Billis. I'm Bill Baker, and thank you for listening.